You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. This is Chris Robinson reporting from the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine here in Atlanta, Georgia. And we are joined by Larry Shields, who presented the oral presentation number seven in the oral plenary session one for the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, entitled Use of Maternal Early Warning Trigger Tool Reduces Maternal Morbidity. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. So this is a very hot topic. We certainly have a big focus on the reduction of maternal morbidity and mortality. And Dr. Shields, you did a very unique study out in California, multi-center. We're really interested to understand kind of what triggered this and how you designed your study going forward. So the trigger was really realizing as part of our perinatal safety team that we had patients coming in and just like what we found as part of the California Review of Maternal Mortality, symptoms were being ignored and assumed that everything was going to be fine. And as we all know, that doesn't always pan out to be the truth. So we started out with a retrospective review of ICU admissions from, I think it was seven of our hospitals that we could get easy access through the electronic medical record Mm -hmm. and looked at factors that were associated with ICU admission and the disease sort of entity that put them there. Certainly. So this is what led you then to act and you developed a very unique trigger system that would lead patients to be identified. So how challenging was that to roll out to the hospitals? And what type of hospitals are we talking about? So we rolled this out in six trial hospitals within a hospital system with 29 community-based hospitals. And so the trial hospitals are volunteers, so to speak. Um, The way we make change in our hospital system is to come up with an area that we feel that we can make improvement, come up with an idea of how to do it, um, get consensus from different members of the 29 hospital system to say, yes, this seems appropriate based on all the information that we have within our system and out of our system, and then ask for volunteers who want to participate in seeing if it makes a difference. And then if we get a difference, then we're at the stage we are right now, which we showed at this meeting, and now we'll roll it out to all of our hospitals. Very interesting. So one of the things that's very unique about this study is it speaks not only to the academic facilities, but it also speaks to the community facilities. So it has a very large application pool because you also included those facilities within your study. Did you face any challenges when you went out to smaller hospitals to look at a maternal early warning system. There are only community hospitals that were a part of the trial, and the main challenge always is convincing the physicians that they should participate and the hospital administration. We've, in our hospital system now, I think, developed a, a fairly positive track record, mm-hmm. and with each new initiative, we tend to get a, a greater number of volunteers that want to be one of the trial mm-hmm. sites because they know that this is where we're probably going to be going, and they want to be kind of on the forefront, and they're all interested in the same goal. Mm-hmm. In Proven care for their patients. Obviously, this required a lot of training. Training from physicians, training from nurses based upon the triggers. What were the triggers that surprised you as making maybe the highest impact upon patient care? You know, the triggers that probably are the most severe obviously were the least common. Mm-hmm. And 
some of those were, you know, severe tachycardia or nurse uncomfortable with the patient's status. And there wasn't really any one sort of combination that said, okay, that's the one. Mm -hmm. uh, which is why I think the combination of including multiple triggers, making sure that they're sustained for a reasonable length of time, and then convincing people that, you know, here's an evaluation you should do. The biggest difference between the early warning trigger tool that we utilized and that had been proposed by others is that not only did we say, well, here's something that has triggered an alert. No one likes alerts in, right. in the hospital these days because they're going off left and right. But here's an alert, and here's what you should think about doing with that alert. So you weren't left with having the physician go, okay, well, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. Okay, I see where they're coming from. This is what we should do. Let's let's go ahead and follow this pathway. Mm -hmm. And we saw that the physicians tended to follow the pathway very closely. Right. I believe you had very high compliance within your study for physician involvement within the pathway that was defined based on that trigger. What was that for your study? It was The compliance with following the recommended evaluation was uh, 82%. That is remarkable. So clearly a lot of education, the rollout was accepted, and it makes a difference. I mean, I think that is really the key that people are looking for. So we want to congratulate you for your work, and thank you for taking time to speak to us this morning. Great. Thank you for having me. So we are joined by Dr. Selican Blesson from the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas to discuss oral presentation number 64, novel lean type 2 diabetic rat model using gestational low-protein programming. This presentation is being presented in the oral concurrent session 5 entitled Diabetes, Fetal Programming, and Metabolism. Thank you, Dr. Blesson, for joining us Thank today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Christopher. So this is a very unique presentation of a specific animal model looking at type 2 diabetes from a novel perspective. We often see diabetics being examined from obesity, but you're looking at a lean model of type yeah, 2 absolutely. diabetes. Th this has been there for from 1930s onwards. People have identified, they've classified it in different names. Mostly this was observed in Caribbean or underdeveloped countries. So recently it has got a lot of attention. Even recently, last year, there was a study in the United States among minority population where they showed that there is a sizable number of population which is lean. So they have normal or low BMI. Mm -hmm. So this cannot be explained by the traditional lifestyle-based type 2 diabetes. So that's why we thought this developing such a model is very important. There are several animal models, especially rodents, which scientists use to study the molecular mechanism of type 2 diabetes, but almost all of them are obese. So I would assume then this lends more toward the genetic programming potentially mm -hmm. rather than the diet obesity induced type 2 diabetes. Exactly. So diet does play a role here. We think what is happening here is epigenetic modification. So epigenetic is a big buzzword now. Absolutely. So, so a lot of studies are being done. Uh, currently on epigenetics. Although we don't understand the exact mechanism as of now, we think it is epigenetically programmed based on the mother's diet when the child is still in uterus. Okay, so this is called gestational programming or fetal programming. So when the, when the mother is pregnant, the amount of protein she takes is very important. So this model which we have developed, what we do is the control animals get 20% protein, whereas the low protein animal or the type 2 diabetic like simulated model, so these animals get 6% protein. Wow. So the dietary intervention is only during the developmental phase from 
day four to day 22 of rat pregnancy. Once they are born, the mothers get normal diet. When the pups are weaned, pups also get normal diet. So the dietary intervention is only during the critical phase during pregnancy. So as they grow older, right from two months onwards, we start seeing glucose intolerance. And then we, we were able to show by eight months, they show insulin resistance. And then the, we also have studied their molecular mechanism, which was published in endocrinology uh, in 2014, where we show that the glucose uptake in males is completely altered. So the GLUT4 mechanism is altered. Very interesting. So the programming of the fetus in utero, even though you were correcting for diet after reverting back to a normal protein diet persisted through this epigenetic modification? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something which we are not able to understand as of now. So whatever that happens in utero sets a threshold. So it sets some kind of nutritional sensing threshold in utero. And then when they become adult, even when they get normal diet, it is not able to correct. So probably there is some issue with sensing. Okay. Yesterday I had a poster where I showed that these animals also have issues with glucose production. Okay. So in a normal person, say for example, when we are fasting, the blood glucose level is maintained by gluconeogenesis mm -hmm. or glycogenolysis, right? So it maintains. But as soon as we take food, glucose is sensed in our system and then this system slowly gets suppressed mm -hmm. the gluconeogenesis or glucose production part gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis gets shut down slowly not completely but it goes down suppressed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but in these animals this suppression mechanism is flawed so they not only they get glucose from the dietary source now mm -hmm. the glucose production continues to happen mm -hmm. so this is similar to what happens in many diabetic patients absolutely and how about gender what was the role of gender in the offspring in this okay, case so this is a very interesting question if you go back to the literature most of the studies in diabetes is done on males because mm -hmm. people thought that females have this pesky hormone which we don't want to work with right and which is cycling but what is interesting here is the onset is earlier in females and it is also severe. We also did euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp, which is considered a gold standard to measure the insulin mm -hmm. resistance. So what we find is in the males, they are twofold insulin resistant when they are compared to the controls, mm -hmm. whereas in females it is fivefold. And wow. also in the molecular mechanism, males have issue with glucose transport where females have issue with glucose conversion to glycogen. It is a GSK3 beta pathway which is being affected. Well, that is very interesting. Thank you very much for taking time to discuss your work with us, and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. We are joined by Dr. Camille Hoffman, who is from the University of Colorado Denver Health Medical Center in Denver, Colorado. She presented in poster session four, poster number 605, health service utilization and charges of mothers with bipolar disorder and their children. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So bipolar disorder is a very popular problem because we all have such difficulty in managing some of these patients and understanding the things that they face during pregnancy, which are very different than our other population. Tell me a little bit about your work in this area. So totally agree with you, Dr. Robinson. Bipolar disorder is a challenge situation to manage in pregnancy, but the real challenge comes in the postpartum period. Women with bipolar disorder are much more likely to have relapse in the postpartum period. That can involve a manic episode, that can involve psychosis, 
And psychosis is directly related to infanticide and suicide. So while those events are overall low, they are becoming more leading causes of maternal mortality as we get better at managing the historically more common causes of maternal mortality. So we designed this study to look at women with bipolar disorder diagnoses and their utilization of care during pregnancy, but also how their bipolar disorder may have influenced their deliveries, their charges at deliveries as a representation of the acuity of the care that they needed, as well as their and their children's charges for two years into the postpartum postnatal period to see where they were utilizing care and if that represented utilization of higher levels of care, more acute care versus primary care. And really this was to leverage better postpartum surveillance for our moms with bipolar in our healthcare system. Absolutely. So it really is a target group that is specifically at risk, especially during the postpartum time period where maybe they don't have appropriate access to care or maybe are not appropriately accessing the care. What did you find in these patients in the postpartum course? Well, one other thing that I would like to mention is that especially in moms with mental health conditions, a lot of times we hear that the acuity and frequency of our care really intensifies prenatally, but then in the postpartum period, we send them home with a challenging situation, a newborn with minimal contact and surveillance. Absolutely. And so we hear this from our patients and we also hear it from the perinatal psychiatry community that this is when they really are at the most risk of becoming acutely ill. So while we surveillance moms with a moderately elevated blood pressure intensely in the postpartum period or for glucose follow-up, something like this that is associated with very adverse mom and baby outcomes is something that is often overlooked. Absolutely. I mean, it really calls attention to the need for appropriate access to mental health services in pregnancy and a redefinition of the fear of utilization of pharmacotherapy in these patients where indicated. Absolutely. Moms with bipolar disorder, if they've been on a mood stabilizer that has worked for them in the past, oftentimes will self-discontinue those medications early in pregnancy. But my opinion is that restarting medication should be readdressed really at every prenatal care visit with a strong emphasis on restarting, of course, if they have any symptomatology that develops during pregnancy, but otherwise almost obligatory restart of those mood stabilizers before they go home postpartum. Did the location of care for these women, where they're seeking their care, did it influence their utilization of services? It did. So this study was performed in a safety net hospital system that is also an academic training facility in Denver, Colorado. Colorado. So we have a central hospital where most of the high-risk outpatient care occurs, but there are also 19 community-based clinics and 14 school-based clinics. And so we looked throughout our system at both charges at delivery for mom and baby and then the utilization of care. We also separated the population into three groups, moms with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder ascertained from the medical record by ICD-9 coding, compared to a group of moms with depression, anxiety, or PTSD diagnoses as an other mental health group composed of really the most common disorders 
in women of childbearing age in relation to mental health, and then a group who had no mental health diagnoses ascertained from the medical record. And bipolar or moms or mothers with a bipolar diagnosis had the highest delivery charges for themselves, the highest delivery charges for, for their infants. That was strongly influenced by an increased preterm birth rate in those moms, a decreased interconception interval with those moms, so another risk factor for preterm birth and advanced care utilization. And then in the two years postnatally, those moms also had increased charges that were significantly different from the no mental health group out to two years. And then when we broke it down by where those charges were generated, moms with bipolar had a 17-fold increased risk of having charges that were generated out of the psychiatric emergency room or inpatient psychiatry unit compared to moms with no mental health diagnoses. Absolutely. So one of the things with these specific patients, knowing that they're a target group, I'm sure you've thought about the possibility of how do we provide appropriate education such that those patients can access services and understand the access to services so much better. This is often Oftentimes, one of our very first limitations. Were there any differences in educational resources these patients could access or receive between the safety net hospitals utilized? So since the time that we did this study, yes, but we've used some of these data to generate interest within our system and the capacity to do that. And so that can occur in a couple of different ways in our system now. It can occur by a phone follow-up at least as a point of contact in the two weeks postpartum. We have integrated peri natal mental health model in our prenatal and postnatal care now. So a mental health provider embedded in all of the clinics that provide prenatal and postnatal care. So we can do a warm handoff if a mom's really struggling. We have a psychiatric emergency department and a developing and evolving relationship with them as far as perinatal care. But what we really emphasize is in our study population, only 1.7% of moms had a bipolar diagnosis. So while they are a small fraction of the overall population, population, they generate quite a bit of charges and utilization of care. And furthermore, this is a number that we should be able to get our arms around in a healthcare system. So it shouldn't be burdensome to care for 1.7% of the population more intensively than the general population. And so we're trying to triage moms according to their risk. And this type of research certainly leads to health policy change, and it helps influence how we use our healthcare resources. So I really want to congratulate congratulate you. It's an excellent presentation, an excellent paper. We're looking forward to seeing it. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.